you ask yourself, what is the best way to convey those ideas? And I think it's through storytelling. I think it's simply about telling the narrative that is true to the idea and is true to the science, but it's told in a compelling way that people can read it and then never forget it. University of Alabama's Colbrox College Business, it's Bama Means Business, a podcast that reveals amazing stories most people both inspire and make a difference in our community. I'm Cole Stevens on the show today, John List. John is an economist, author, and world-renowned researcher in the study of behavioral economics. He took time out of his day to sit down with us to talk about his new book, The Voltage Effect, as well as future ambitions in the field of economics, especially working for Walmart as their first chief economist ever. I hope you enjoy. So a few reasons. One, I'm here to see the great faculty in the Culver House School of Business. And two, I'm talking about my book titled The Voltage Effect. Now, talking about sort of your career, it's been a lot. I I read the biography (laughs) on you, try to educate myself, but I don't think I have enough time to keep up with it. You're originally from Wisconsin, correct? I am. A little community called Sun Prairie, Wisconsin. And you ended up getting your PhD at the University of Wyoming, correct? That's right. I went across the country and I got my PhD in 1996 at the University of Wyoming. And what was that in by any chance? That was in economics. Okay. Breaking down your career, you've done a lot. You've held positions of chief chief economist at both Uber, Lyft, and now Walmart. What does that mean? And why should people look at you as sort of like the model economist? (laughs) The model economist. I like that. I like that. Uh, John List, the model economist. I'm not sure if anyone will ever say that, but I really appreciate that title. So when you think about what I have done, so I was at Lyft for four years as a chief economist. I was at Uber for two years. And as you noted, I'll be starting at Walmart next month. So what I essentially do is any econ question that the company has, whether it's the CEO, the CTO, the CFO, anyone on the executive team, if they have an economic issue that they want me to work on, my team and I work on it. So you can think, well, what is an economic issue? What does he mean by that? So think about a question along the lines of what's the best way to price an Uber trip or what's the best way to price a head of lettuce at Walmart? I work on pricing. Another issue I work on is what are the best ways to hire people into Walmart jobs or hire drivers on Uber or Lyft? I think about how wages matter how non-financial things matter, like corporate social responsibility. I think about the gender pay gap. Why do women get paid less than men to do exactly the same jobs? And I think about ways to rectify that gender pay gap. So I want the listeners to view the chief economist as anytime you have an economic question, an economist can help. Now, when you think about it that way, I'm a believer that economics is life, and life is economics. So that means that I'm willing to take on any question in a firm. 
You study more on the side of behavioral economics, a more modern field of economics. Do you mind breaking what that means down as a professor, but also as working in industry? Absolutely. So here's how I want you to think about it. I live in Chicago, and if I want to fly to Fenway Park in Boston to watch a Red Sox game, neoclassical economics will get me from Chicago to the parking lot of Fenway, but I need behavioral economics to find my seat in Fenway Park. So behavioral economics is a series of amendments, usually using psychology, but also using sociology, computer science, political science, what have you, to amend the major economic model to make it more predictive, to make it more real, to make it more prescriptive of what happens in the real world. That's behavioral economics. Now, when you think of it that way, every firm should have a behavioral economist because every firm in every government should be thinking about it as, look, these are real people. And what are the best ways to both improve their lives in the best ways to improve how well the firm does for those consumers or for those workers. That's behavioral economics. It's a great uh, explanation of it. And Alabama has a few professors that are pretty good at it, and you're actually working in conjunction with currently, correct? Absolutely. I mean, you think about people like Mike Price. You think about people like Carrie Deck, uh, Tigran Malconian, and and many others. Brian's super good. Um, Across different areas, you have people like Christy Reynolds over in marketing. So look, any people who want to change the world and they want to think about changing the world are going to be behavioralists in a way. And what I mean by that is you have a lot of basic scientists. That's great. That eventually changes the world. And you have a lot of applied scientists. They're thinking about changing the world tomorrow rather than next month. And those applied behavioralists are just scattered all around campus, and they're all world-class. So that's the great part about the University of Alabama, is that around every corner, you have a star academic who's not only willing to teach you, but they're willing to do great research to teach the rest of the world. Now, you have a lot of published material, especially in economics, both in applied, but also some theory that you talked about. Yeah. One thing I always like to ask, writing a book is a lot. Yeah. You obviously wor- worked on the Y-axis, correct? That's right. the previous book of yours. Why did you ch- choose to take on a whole other book, especially during COVID and everything going yeah. on around you? Yeah, it's a great question. So I had been working on the what I call the science of using science or the science of scaling for roughly five or six years. And I had been writing academic papers. And those academic papers have been both theoretical exercises and empirical exercises. And I was very proud of them. You know, maybe a dozen or two of these academic papers on the science of using science. So at at this point, you then have to step back and you have to say, should I double down and create more academic papers? Or should I kind of veer to the left and say, 
I want to write a popular book that a truck driver can understand. And I say truck driver in an affectionate way because my brother's a trucker, my dad was a trucker, my grandfather was a trucker. So this is this is who I am. I want the layperson to understand what we've produced in the area of scaling and in the area of I have an idea. Can that idea get blown up? Can it scale? There are a lot of great insights in the academic journals, but they will always be locked up in the academic journals unless occasionally the academic stops, takes stock of what's in those academic papers and writes them up in an accessible way. And I said, look, this literature is important enough that we should do this. So that's why I wrote the popular book, The Voltage Effect. Now, reading through the book, you definitely hinge a lot of sort of your theories on cases that you use a lot. That's right. Which I I love that idea because you sort of see a book almost as a tool. How do I use it? How did, you know, yourself use it in this example? When you're breaking this down, obviously you talked about your audience already. In the first part of your book, you actually talked about knowing your audience. Know your audience. That's one of the big things about an idea. (laughs) About scaling, that's right. (laughs) When you break down the book. Obviously, you have the idea section, and then you sort of like the applying that section. What do you think is the most important part? Oh, gosh. Um, First of all, you need an idea that matters. And you need an idea that is correct. And you need an idea that's novel. So once you have that, you have the ingredients of a book. Okay. The next question then is, after you fulfilled that necessary condition of you have an idea, you ask yourself, what is the best way to convey those ideas? And I think it's through storytelling. I think it's simply about telling the narrative that is true to the idea and is true to the science But it's told in a compelling way that people can read it and then never forget it. And they can read it and understand it. What does it mean? And how can I apply it to my life? If you can do that a few times or several times in a book, now we have some magic. And now the goal is I just need people to read the book. That's the hardest part about writing and getting your word out is actually convincing people you should read this book. The the writing is, I do this my whole life. The second hardest thing, frankly, is trying to come up with a title of of what should I call the book. But um, it's really, to me, the most effective way to talk about your ideas is through narratives and through ideas let's say, stories that that people can really latch on to. In the second part of your book, you have a section on uh, culture, which I think is very unique. I like that one a lot because part of being in business is knowing how to build a company that's going to be successful around an idea, around a movement. In the past two, three years, we've seen a huge shift from a lot of in-person work to more hybridization. You yourself are, are actually working on projects not only at the University of Chicago, but also in conjunction with Alabama, with, you know, people in Australia, where do you really see culture going and sort of revolutionizing the past in the next couple of years? 
Yeah, gosh, it's a great question. So I think it's first of all important to step back and say, what do you mean when you say the word culture? Because culture is one of the C words, a little bit like creativity, cleverness, critical thinking, that when you ask people, what is culture to you? If I ask 30 people, I'll get 30 different definitions. Okay, so the way I think about culture is it's an environment that allows people to be productive and also feel safe and comfortable. Okay, so after we're in the same camp, that this is what culture means to you, we can say, how do we build that culture? And this chapter was fun to write because it took me back to a lot of my work on things like the economics of gender, the economics of diversity, the economics of inclusiveness. And why are these elements important to a workplace culture? And are they important whether we're together or whether we're separated by space, which is exactly as you mentioned, a lot of jobs now you're separated in space. You have one person living in Denver, one in Chicago, one in New York, one in San Francisco, but they're still working toward the same goal with the firm. Just because you're separated in space, what I've learned, that doesn't mean culture is less important. What is true, what's less important is face-to-face -face communication, but you're doing this over Zoom, so it's, it's like a face-to-picture kind of communication. But in each of those settings, you have the same issues going on. And for me, it's starting out by making the workplace fair. And with my research, that means let's think about the gender pay gap. So I've done work for about 25 years on the simple question, why are people paid differently in labor force, in our, the labor force, and how can we change that? And how can we change it so it's fair to everyone? Now, think about wage negotiations. So I did a study a few years ago with a colleague named Andreas Lebrandt. He's a professor in Australia talking about, you know, working with people from, uh, from a long distance away. So here's what we did. We decided that we needed to hire hundreds of people. So we put out some job advertisements. In some of the job advertisements, we said, wages are negotiable. In other job advertisements, we left that sentence out of the ad. Everything else was the same. One job advert said wages are negotiable. The other one left that sentence out. And then we looked at the application rates of people. And we looked at when we reached out to the people who applied, whether they negotiated their wage or not. Here's what we find. When we say wages are negotiable, women negotiate as much or more than men. Okay, that's great. Then they end up with equal wages. When we leave that sentence out of the advertisement, women shy away from negotiating. And in fact, they negotiate much less than men. And the low quality men negotiate the most. So that leads to initial wages to be very different between men and women because the women are not negotiating 
like they should. Now you can say, well, what's going on here? Why, why is that the case? As it turns out, women tend to be ambiguity averse. What that means, and now a lot of your listeners might not uh, read or speak economies. So what ambiguity aversion means is that whenever you enter an uncertain environment, like you're not certain how to behave, women become much more conservative and men become more aggressive, especially the low quality men become more aggressive. And that's exactly what we found in our data. So the general point here is be very careful, be very scientific, because every element of your org, I just gave you an example of the initial job advertisement that matters a lot for the workplace culture. Why? Because it affects who gets paid what in, in our org. Now, if things like that, a sentence matters, you can imagine this chapter is chock full of examples like this. What are the best ways to build a culture? And that culture needs to be one, again, where people can be productive and people can feel safe and people can be comfortable. And that's what that chapter is about. I think that's a great point. And sort of getting back to the root of the book, giving you know every person mm -hmm. access to these ideas that might not speak economies, which I think is a, a great saying that you have. <laughs> How do you think people in their daily lives can utilize these tools when maybe yeah. approaching a problem that they have the opportunity to maybe compare multiple different scenarios? Yeah. No, I, I, I like that question because I think of the book as a book that everyone should pick up. Now, you'd look at the title and you'd say, look, this is just a book for entrepreneurs or this is just a book for business people who are interested in scaling an idea. Well, check. That's true. But the book is also a glimpse into how you can use economics to make your own decision-making better. How the, the curious person can understand economics and understand how to use it to make their lives better. So an example, let's think about incentives. So I talk about this in chapter six of the book. And I tee it up by saying, let's look at the tipping rates on Uber. So when I say tipping rates, I mean, as the chief economist at Uber, I did an exploration of how much do people actually tip their driver when they take an Uber trip. And there are some kind of really sad facts around this. So one sad fact is only 1% of people tip on every Uber trip. And I said that right, 1%, 1 in 100. That's crazy. Now, on the other side of the coin, 60% never, ever tip. Even crazier, right? Three out of five people never, ever tip. Now, when I take those same three out of five people who never, ever tip, and I put them in a traditional cab situation, a traditional cab is you, you take a cab and you uh, settle up after the trip is done, you pay people face-to-face, Nearly every one of them tip in that case. So you can say, well, what's going on here? Same people, but now they're tipping much more often. It's because of social norms mm. and social pressure and a conformity, if you will, that I don't want to look like a blank blank if I'm not tipping this person when I should. Those types of incentives 
are all around us. And once we recognize them, we can begin to understand the world more. And we can begin to understand, maybe I should set up some of these incentives to make the world a better place or to get my workers or my colleagues to, to do certain things. So that's why I say this is kind of a one-stop shop for using economics to make your life a little bit better. No, that's a great point. And having just finished this book, obviously you're sort of going on a little bit of a tour right now, trying to spread, talk a little bit more about it, which I think was great. Obviously the talk last night was awesome. Really oh, good turnout for sure. Thanks. You just published a book, obviously. You're still doing research, obviously. That never stopped in your yeah. uh, background. We're also starting a new position at Walmart. Yeah. What do you see in the next couple of years as being your main focus, and what do you really want to focus on yourself? Oh, gosh, gosh, great question. So let's separate that into three bins, if, if you might. Um, the first bin is the early childhood work. And what I mean by early childhood work is thinking about from – the crib to kindergarten, what are the best ways to giving the underserved communities their best shot? Right now, there are so many kids who really never have a chance. And with my wife, we're developing technology. She's doing most of the work. Um, she's she's brilliant, a surgeon back at the University of Chicago. Her name's Dana Suskind. We're developing technology that is a wearable device that the baby wears, and we record all of the interaction between parents and caregivers in the baby. And then behind this, we're doing a machine learning model to figure out what are the best paths or ways of interaction that lead to great kindergarten readiness. And then we're going to set, set up a, a playbook for parents that they can use to make sure that they're giving their child the best ways of interaction and the best uh, means of interaction in zero to five. So that's that's one bin that is using science in the early childhood space to try to make a difference in people's lives. The second bin I would say would be my work in charitable giving. So about 25 years ago, I started working with a lot of nonprofits. And this is essentially work to try to figure out why do people give their money and their time to charitable causes, called the economics of charitable giving or the economics of philanthropy. And I see this work continuing, and it's important because we don't have enough of these organizations that are thriving in this world where the government doesn't provide enough. And it's a very decentralized way to provide some good stuff. Uh, to, say, underserved communities or, or to people who need these types of goods and services. So I think the work on charitable giving will continue. And then the third bin is the work with for-profit firms. And here's where Walmart comes. Now, it's hard for me to predict if I came back here in two years, which I hope I get an invitation, I'd love to come back to Culver House. I'm sure, you would. we love having you here. Okay, very good. So if I get an invite and you said, John, forecast, what will you talk about in terms of your work at Walmart that you think you will end up doing and how how is it going to help the world? I would say it will likely be one part using behavioral economics within Walmart to make the consumer and 
let's say the the consumer's experience better off, it might be one part HR. So what I'm thinking about here is let's dig into who got promoted. Why did they get promoted? What happens after the promotion in terms of productivity? And what happens when you should have gotten promoted, but you didn't? Are you less productive? Do you flee? What happens if the labor market doesn't have any jobs for you? Do you become a disgruntled employee? And what can we do better in the promotion process to make you happier and more productive? So I can see some HR stuff. I can see some pharmacy stuff. You have Walmart moving into the space very aggressively, being a healthcare provider, thinking about what are the best ways to get people to adhere to their prescription meds, for example. A big question that you have in the medical field is why don't people take their meds? And that's a hard question, the adherence or the compliance problem. I could see talking about that. I could see talking about last mile delivery. So the fact that 90% of people live with, within 10 miles of a Walmart, well, that's a big deal. And that shows you the footprint. So maybe we can talk about last mile delivery. And are we making people's lives better by having more delivery in rural parts of the country? This, this is an important um, advance. So as you can see, the, um, the canvas is pretty wide open and it can be very rich, but I think it will go all the way from the consumer experience to the worker experience and also to perhaps some communities that really have been neglected and how can we make their lives better? No, I think you look at the history of Walmart, they have such a wide-reaching impact yeah. in the country, especially, and internationally yeah, yeah, now. Absolutely. I think Sam Walton, obviously, the founder of Walmart, yeah. was a visionary, I would say. It's really oh, like his gosh. growth of the supermarket. And oh, I, gosh, you're right. I mean, supermarkets grown so much, and, and I'm trying to consider what to call my team. I'm thinking it should be called Waltonomics, but I'm not, because at Uber, we were called Ubernomics. So why not do a little bit of Waltonomics, right? What do you think about that name? I think it's actually a pretty good name. It, it sort of sticks with the whole Walmart-esque, but still it does, right? the economics part. I think you have a more data than you could ever expect. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. think we actually did a case study. I took a management class here in which we actually used Walmart as our case study. Yeah. Sort of like analyzing more HR management side of it, how yeah. they divide up teams and how they operate because yeah. they're very public about it and sort of how they do it. But I wrote a book last winter i want to believe and it was on grocery stores yeah and it was yeah. like i was covering all the grocery stores like piggly wiggly yeah Publix, you had kroger and aldi etc all those but it sort of pride me like a whole new perspective yeah. on why it matters because obviously there's consumer side yeah. you have the cost of goods that you have to consider obviously on daily life but also locations of walmart's so what does that do to an economy how does that impact obviously rural communities, stuff like that, that you don't necessarily think about when you just stop by Walmart when you're going there. But as an yeah. economist, you sort of have to start considering on a grander scale because you are working for corporate. You are looking at the entirety of Walmart as a whole. No, I'm glad you brought that up. And I think you make two really good points. One point is when you begin to think about the world through the lens of an economist, you start to say, well, wait a second, Walmart created uh, a new store, a new superstore in Des Moines. 
And how exactly did that affect other stores in the area? How did it affect the workers? And how does it affect the consumers? Economics is everything. And an economist, I think, can lend some insights. Now, you also said about the data. And it is true that Walmart has mounds and mounds of data. Every big firm, even medium and small-sized firms, have data. Obviously, the big firms have more data because they have more customers and more locations and more products and services. But nevertheless, everyone has data. And you've been hearing things like, data is the new oil. You know, in the past, people have said oil is the most important thing in a modern economy. And now they say that data is the most important thing. They're actually wrong. It's not data per se. It's the refiner of data. That is the most valuable feature of any firm, whether it's for-profit or non-profit, any governmental organization, whether it's a local, state, federal government. Everyone has data. The unique feature of having data is that you understand how to analyze it and you understand how you can go from a big pile of data to something that is actionable. That's what's unique about data. And that's what's unique about what I do. I think about myself as a data refinery. And my team at Walmart will be saying, look, on the one hand, let's take a glimpse under the hood of all the Walmart data. And what can we learn to make Walmart and the rest of the world better off? That's point one. Now, point two is, in many cases, it's hard to go beyond a correlation when you have mounds and mounds of data. So a lot of two variables, three variables, et cetera, there's a lot of correlation in the world. That's helpful, but it's not a deep insight. What you need to make a deep insight is what is the causal relationship between two variables? Do these two variables go beyond a correlation? And that's where experimentation comes in. So in my career, I've used the world as my lab. And it's to make causal inference. Because once you can make a causal statement, it's a lot easier to make the world a better place. Because you know, if I push on one variable, I know the other variable will also be affected. That's a causal relationship. And that's what's important. And that's why data refineries are important. It's a great point. I can't wait to see sort of the fruits of your labor when it comes to Walmart and where this goes in the future. One thing I like to wrap up all these sit sure. down conversations with is advice. Obviously, yeah. you've done a lot. You've served on the White House Council. You've worked a lot of big companies that everyone knows about. What piece of advice would you give yourself, someone who's in yeah. college right now between 18 and maybe 24 years old? No, that's a great question. So my piece of advice would be when I look at the uber successful people who I've worked with, and it's whether it was in the White House or in the academy or in the nonprofit world or in the for-profit world, these uber successful people have a handful of characteristics that they share. And 
The first characteristic is that they're all monomaniacal. So whether it's Travis Kalanick founding Uber, whether it's Jim Heckman or Steve Levitt working in the academy, whether it's President Bush and or Condi Rice or Colin Powell, when I worked in the White House, what they were up to, it was always they had an objective function and they were monomaniacal about achieving it. So characteristic one that I want all of you to have is be monomaniacal. Now, to be monomaniacal, you have to have these two other features. One is you have to love what you're doing. And the second one is you have to be good at what you're doing. Because it's hard to love something that you're not good at. In economies, we call it, you have to have a comparative advantage. So it's always follow your comparative advantage. And then it follows that you will then be monomaniacal because you're doing something that you love. Now, the fourth kind of shared trait is that people understand when to quit and they understand when to pivot. There are too many people who have banged their head against the same wall over and over again. I think Einstein defined insanity that way. It's trying the same problem in the exact same way over and over again and getting the same result. It's a failure. So the point is, is that you need to understand when to quit. And as the book talks about, we don't quit enough. We don't quit enough because of two reasons. Society tells us it's repugnant and we tend to neglect our opportunity cost of time. I'm not going to unpack those here. I'll let the reader, but I promise you that I unpack them in a non-economies way in the book. But the idea is you understand the optimal quitting rule. And then the fifth feature is the person uses science and they use science to understand about what they don't understand. So I've worked with a lot of leaders who are not so good. And those are the leaders who say, I already know the answer. I, it's art and it's a gut feeling. And they tend not to use science to understand what they don't understand. Now, first time I walked into Uber, I looked on the pillar and it said, data is our DNA. That's what it said on the, on the pillar. And there were these signs all around Uber that said, data is our DNA. A lot of companies have slogans. Most of the time, they're just nonsensical, feel-good slogans that people don't follow. But Uber really followed that. And they followed it because at the very top of the culture was, we don't know the answer, but data will give us the answer. And data is a shorthand way of kind of saying science. And we need science to understand the answer. So that would be the fifth shared characteristic that every uber successful person has so that'd be the advice that i would give to the listeners that's a great point and thank you again for making time for us today i had a crazy busy schedule we were doing a lot running around campus and talking to a lot of people but it was great meeting with you and anyone picks up your book it's available online as well as audiobook i believe no absolutely look it's available anywhere i don't have any preferences except to say i really hope you you give the book a chance uh, thank you again for your time, John. It was great having you. Hope to see you down here in two years. I can't wait. Thanks for having me. And I look forward to talking to you again soon. That's John List, economist and author. And thanks so much for listening to the show today. If you're not a subscriber, please do subscribe to the podcast wherever you get yours. 
And of course, check out our website at culverhouse.ua.edu to learn more about the Culverhouse College business and what it has to offer. And as always, roll tide.